This is Truth Encounter, and we are going to discover from Deuteronomy chapter 16 that God himself placed a lot of stock in the need for his children to get out from their urban sophistication and go camping, not to get back to nature, but to get back to God. Dave begins with an incredible statement about God the Father's interest in outdoor living. Dave? God the Father enjoys camping out so much that in the Old Testament, he actually made his people go camping out at least once a year. Every year, he made especially all the men go camping out. In fact, they would camp up. If they were living way up in northern Galilee, they would get out their sleeping bags, they'd get their backpacks all ready, and they would start walking down in Jerusalem, and they would camp out on the way, and they would bring their families off, and they'd bring their sons and daughters, and then they'd come to Jerusalem. Once a year in the heart of October, the Lord God would make them get their sleeping bags, and he would make them build like a temporary shelter. Like when I was a kid... One of the major things that we did during the summertime was to go out and cut down ferns. We cut down pine branches and we would kind of, you know, cut some saplings and we'd make lean-tos. Anybody ever done that? Probably almost all of you have. We'd make these lean-tos kind of like in the Boy Scouts. We'd put all these boughs on top, all these different kinds of branches. And then we'd sleep in those things. And when it rained, you know, the rain would come right on through the leaves. And it was all kind of great fun. Did you realize that the children of Israel had to do that? Not just when they were kids, but the Lord God made them do that at least once a year. I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 16. We've been studying together about the three major festivals of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 16, we're learning about the third one. We began by studying about the Passover, which came in the spring of the year. And then that was the time that celebrated the deliverance out of Egypt. That would be held in the month of April or March, March, April. As we move into the month of June, the children of Israel all had to get together again, and they celebrated a feast called the Feast of the 50th. In other words, 50 days after, after Passover, they had to celebrate another time, and they would gather together down the central sanctuary down in Jerusalem, and they would celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. Now, we learned as we put this together beginning back in the Mosaic Law and then coming up in the New Testament, we discovered that Passover reminds us of Jesus, the Passover lamb that was slain for us. And so as we think about Passover today, we can think about the fact that our Savior is the lamb of God that John the Baptist identified, and he is the lamb that gave his life for us. We studied together and we studied the Feast of the 50th, that the children of Israel would look upon this Pentecost celebration as the time when the law was given. And they would celebrate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And we learned that at Pentecost was when the birth of the church took place and God sent his Holy Spirit to live and dwell in our hearts. And so as New Testament believers, we can remember that the Lord gave the law at Mount Sinai, but more importantly, we can remember that the Lord wrote the law on our heart. And we studied about the new covenant that it talks about in Hebrews 9 and 10, where Jeremiah the prophet predicted and the prophet who wrote the book of Hebrews brought it all together for us. And he said that in the new covenant, God wrote his law not on tablets of stone, But he wrote God's law, God's moral principles, deep within our heart. 
Today we want to study about the third festival, that third time in the year calendar of the children of Israel when they had to get together. And let's read about this Feast of Camping Out or the Feast of Tabernacles. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13. Now the children of Israel would do something when they read the Word of God. In the Old Testament at the Feast of Tabernacle, the priests would go, the Lord is strong, the Lord is mighty, and you would all respond, amen, amen. All right, so let's try that. The priest hollers out, the Lord is mighty, the Lord is the strong one. Amen. Amen. And then you would stand together and continue standing for the reading of the Word of God. Celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your feast, you, your sons and your daughters, your men servants and your maidservants, and the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days celebrate the feast of the Lord your God at the place which the Lord your God will choose. For the Lord God will bless you, and in you all your harvest will be abundant, and in all the work of your hands and in all your joy, things will be complete. Amen? Amen. This is a command to celebrate. The children of Israel will gather together on the first day of this feast, on the 15th day of the month of October, the equivalent of, the Jew, of our month of October. The first day they would gather together and they would offer all these burnt sacrifices. In fact, if you turn over to the book of Numbers, we can read about the incredible number of sacrifices that they offered at these uh, different times of festival. Turn to uh, Numbers chapter 29. And in studying about the Feast of Tabernacles this week, I was amazed at the number of sacrifices that the Lord command that they should offer during this seven or eight day feast. Look at Numbers chapter 29, and it says in verse 12, on the 15th day of the seventh month, hold a sacred or a set apart or a holy assembly. Do no regular work. And all the people said, amen. No regular work done, all right? We've got to celebrate. Celebrate a festival to the Lord for seven days. Now look what it says. Present an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. A burnt offering of 13 young bulls. I'm not sure the farmer said amen there. Okay, 13 young bulls are killed. Two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old, all without defect. The kind that would bring top dollar down at the sale barn. With each of 13 bulls, prepare a grain offering, so you have to take some of your, the harvest of your grain, three-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, and then two rams, two-tenths, and with each of the 14 lambs, one-tenth. Include one male goat as a sin offering, in addition to the regular burnt offering. Now that's just the first day. You offer 13 bulls on the first day. Now look at the next day, the second day. On the second day, he prepared 12 young bulls. Again, two rams. Again, 14 male lambs. And once again, the single goat. On the, on the third day, prepare 11 bulls. And it steps right down through, all the way to, through until you end up on the final day. Look at verse 35. On the eighth day, hold an assembly. Do no regular work. Present an offering made by fire, an aroma pleading to the Lord, a burnt offering of one bull, one ram, and seven males without defect. And so you move right down through the different days, and on every single day, you go through these, these sacrifices. The very first thing that really struck me is that the Lord God made the children of Israel celebrate these feasts 
by bringing their very best. They were an agricultural people. You might say that they were ranchers. You might say that they were people that lived very close to the earth. The Lord made them break away from that farming, break away from all that herding, break away from all that ranching. He made them bring some of the very best of their herds, some of the very best of their flocks, and for an entire week, he made them celebrate before the Lord. And part of that celebration was to sacrifice the very best of their herds. Now, if you're a materialist, that hurts. In other words, if you're living for what your bulls can bring you, and you're trying to watch everything really close, and, and you say, well, man, this was a really good year, and the Lord brought us the October rains, and he brought us the June rains, and he brought us an abundant sunshine in the summertime, and now we had a great, great harvest, and my cattle had enough to eat, and so I can rejoice, but I need to be sure that I hold on to everything. I need to be sure that I, I pinch the pennies really close. I need to be sure that I don't get rid of any of my choice animals, because if I do... What happens next year when there isn't enough rain and there isn't enough sunshine? And you see, if you're really into materialism and that's what you worship and, and that's what your focus is, then it would be very hard to go to the temple. And you know what the Lord made them do? The Lord made them slay these bulls and then he made them burn them completely up. The burnt offering they didn't even get to eat. Now, they brought a lot of other animals that they sacrificed and that they ate with their families and they, they ate and they drank and they rejoiced together. But the offerings that Numbers talks about here, when it talks about a burnt offering, the word that's used, it's, it's the offering that goes completely up. It's the offering that burns up and in the smoke, it's gone. Now, if you're a materialist, you sit there year after year, every single year you go through this, and you scratch your head and you go, what a waste. What a waste. Why did the Lord make them offer these bulls? Well, if you say, if you're one of these people that will believe, well, this is just an ancient book, and, and they're just following the ancient customs, and you see the ancient people believe that the gods needed to eat, and by sacrificing the bull, it would go, and they would feed the gods, and therefore they would placate the favor of their gods, and they would propitiate their anger, and maybe they could have blessing for another year. If you believe in all that kind of a thing, then that's the way you might put together the sacrifice. I don't believe that that's so. I believe, first of all, the Lord made him take these bulls because throughout the Canaanite culture, guess what they worshipped? Guess what they pictured? Baal, Baal, the master god, their idol, the number one proliferation of idols in the land of Canaan was, guess what? A bull. And the Lord says, I'm not going to let a bull control your life. I'm not going to let you, you know, this, this worship and this focus upon Baal who rides on the chariot of a bull. If you don't picture the bull as Baal, it's possible they pictured this bull as being the mount that Baal, the storm god, would ride on. And it was all tied into this idea that somehow Baal brought thunder and lightning and the bull brought fertility. And by praying to him and giving to him and being devoted to him, in fact, making an idol of gold, a golden bull, and then beseeching that bull to perform for you during the agricultural year. That's what all the Canaanites believed. The Lord God says, no. The Lord God says, I want you to take your very best bulls and I want you to sacrifice them. Because you're praying to an invisible God. You're praying to a God that you can't picture in any human way, in any animal way. 
because he is spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And I think the Lord God made the children of Israel gather together, and they would offer these sacrifices, and they would be declaring, we take our prime animals, and we consume them, we burn them up, because we believe that the one who ultimately controls the sunshine, the one who controls the rain, the one who controls the fertility of the field, is the Lord God, the God that appeared on Mount Sinai. And he's not a God that can be manipulated, but he's a God that we can endure and that we can give thanks to. And we're not controlled by the bull. We're not controlled by Baal. We're not controlled by the master that all the Canaanites weep and wail before. Second of all, I think that the Lord was saying not only to deliver them from the Baal cult, but I, I think he's also, he knows in the human heart that in order not to be controlled by things, you've got to be able to let them go. You know one of the major reasons that as a believer, as a child of God, that you need to give? You know one of the major reasons why on a weekly basis or on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, you need to sit down with your checkbook and you need to declare by what you do with your pen, by the graciousness by which you give things away, you need to declare, this does not control me. You see, when I sit down and I take out my checkbook and I've got that big stack of bills, you see, I have to make a real strong decision what I believe and who I believe provides for my needs. It's something that we don't often talk about. Some of you have been raised in a situation, you know, where you come to church on Sunday and you hear message after message, especially when there's a fun drive that's motivating you to give. And boy, you know, you, you have people stand up and say, hey, you need to give. And there it is, that same old motivation. I want to try to get by all that. I want you to realize that what you do with your money expresses right at the core of who you're depending upon. You see, there's a part of me that says, man, I need to work hard. I need to be sure all the bases are covered. I mean, if I work really hard and if, I, if my health is good and everything holds together and the Lord's given me these talents, the Lord's given me these skills, and, and man, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to think I'm going to take my, my ability to motivate people with my mouth. I think I'm going to start traveling all over the country because, man, I've heard that they make $1,000 a pop speaking at these sales conventions. And you see, if I travel around and speak at all these big business conventions, and if I start adding it together and I do about six of those a week, man, I could, I could retire in about 12 years. And I don't think I'm going to teach this Bible stuff anymore. I think I'll use my gift in order to make some money. Because after all, everyone knows in your old age, you're really going to need that. What would I be believing in them? What would I be depending upon? I'd be depending upon me. And I would be depending upon an idea that everything's controlled just by what's below. Now, is that true? No, it's not true. You see, I might go out there and stop preaching the gospel. Not that I'm going to do that. I'm Lord willing, the, the Lord would never let me do that. But if I were to do that, I could, I could go and maybe do it for a week, and then right in the middle of the week, the Lord just plucks my little twanger a little bit, my heart starts beating a little bit irregular, and I find myself in the hospital. And then where's all my self-dependence going to be? We've had really strong reminders of how totally dependent upon the Lord God that we are. Our country generally acts as if we're self-contained. Our country generally acts, and a lot of business people act, as if we've got all the bases covered. 
I felt like when I was staying in Laguna Beach many years ago that certainly these people had all the bases covered. I arrived in L.A. with Mary. I had $15 in my pocket. Another believer in Buffalo had said, Dave, there's some friends. We've got some friends. It's a doctor that live out there somewhere in California. If you really get hard up and, you, and when you first get out there and you need some place to stay, Try to go and see them. So we arrived, and I called several of my dad's friends. Nobody responded. So I looked at this address and said, Mary, let's drive down to Laguna Beach. We drove down to Laguna Beach. We, we, we went up and down these monstrous streets and these mansions. We came to a gate. We talked at the gate to get in. And then we arrived at the home of this doctor. And I'm not kidding. That piano right there in their living room would look like a minuscule little doll's house piano. Their living room was one of the biggest living rooms I've ever seen. It just sprawled out. And then it had all glass, and it looked out over the Pacific Ocean. The, the, the hosts of the house said, I'm really sorry, David and Mary. Our relatives did say that maybe you'd come and stay with us. And, and we've got some other guests staying with us. And we really apologize, but we're going to have to put you up in this side room. Mary and I said, man, we, have, we are willing to sleep anywhere. We've been looking at apartments where they drop beds out of the walls and, they, and the bugs and everything and spiders go everywhere. Just give us any kind of a bed. They ushered us into this massive study, gigantic study. And they opened up this queen-size hide-a-bed and then they opened up the door and they said, now you have your own private bath and this marvelous... I mean, it was luxurious. And remember lying there saying, now, and thinking, this has got all the bases covered. I mean, this is really living, and man, this is really it. As I watch those terrible newscasts of, the, of those, those vicious winds that just about burned Laguna Beach down, I'm reminded of how fragile all of our material things are and how dependent we are. And you know what I find in my own heart? When I sit in my own house... And when the fire was keeping everything warm on a cold night, it's easy to think, well, well, I'm safe and I'm secure and I've got everything under control. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like, man, I really got everything together? You see, one of the things that happens in, in a modern technological world is we get out from sleeping out under the stars. And that's what happened to the children of Israel. You see, the Lord God made them give up their self-dependence. And one of the things he did is make them offer the foremost of their herds and say, Lord, it belongs to you. So the first thing I want to say to you this morning, and I say it to myself, I want us to think of, Lord, how am I offering under the new covenant? I don't have to give bulls. I don't have to give goats. I mean, I'd be hard-pressed if I had to. Because the Lord God, we learn in the book of Hebrews, has already given his son and all the sacrifices are gone under the new covenant. We don't have to offer sheep and goats and bulls. We don't have to shed that blood because Christ shed his blood just one time and it's forever taken care of. Isn't that great? But you see, the new covenant, the new covenant people of God, the Lord still wants us to be a giving people. He wants us to let go of our things. And that's why, for example, that the believers... When Paul really needed help, the Philippian believers sent him an offering. And when he received that offering, he says, I'm so glad that you sent that offering because I know that that offering, though I really could have lived without it, I know that I could be provided for by my heavenly daddy, but I'm really glad that you sent it because of the blessing that's going to abound to you to the glory of God. 
The very first thing I want you to think of as we think about this Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, as well as all these other feasts, was a time when the, when the Lord God made the children of Israel express their total dependence upon him by opening up their hands and giving to him. And I also want you to see in the book of Deuteronomy, he commanded them to rejoice. And we've seen it again and again in the book of Deuteronomy. He made them bring the aliens, the orphans, people that had needs, and he made them give to them as well. And I want to say something that's really important. You're not going to ever live spiritually until you have the freedom to do that. Some of you have been great examples to Mary and I during the years because your heart goes out to those that are in need. And I would encourage you, you know, rather than running up all those credit card bills to try to, you know, to try to buy love, open your heart and just love. And have some special focuses where you give to somebody that would least expect it. As you hear about needs, and you hear about a brother or sister that, that's really struggling, that maybe they just lost their job, or maybe they just suddenly got fired out of the blue, and, and you can feel their heartbeat just anonymously and you'll be releasing your heart to the Lord? You say, Dave, why should I do that? Because you're going to get more than 100% return. Joe Hansen, that used to be the vice president of accounting at Frito-Lay, when he spoke to us, he talked about the parable where the Lord says, I will increase it 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. He said, you know what that means? He says that when you invest in heaven, you see, when they burn these bulls up, we tend to think it's all gone. But you know, the devotion and the love that they represented by offering like that is going to be kept in heaven and it's going to be multiplied 30-fold is 300%, 60-fold is 600%. That's really a good investment. I mean, what, what, what guy on Wall Street can offer you and say, man, you invest here and it's going to yield 300%. The Lord does that with fields. The Lord does that with harvest fields, like with seeds when we plant it. And what he's saying is that the things that we offer to him, like if you respond to a friend that's in need and have all the joy of just knowing you did it, only the Lord really knows, and yet needs are met. You know what the Lord says? He keeps, account, he keeps an account of all those things in heaven, and he multiplies it 300-fold, 600-fold, 1,000-fold. Isn't that incredible? You say, Dave, how do I know that's true? That's where faith comes in. And in my own life, that's where it's the nitty-gritty. You see, it's easy for me on Sunday morning to say, hey, boy, you need to be sure to give and respond to needs. And we need to be sure that we, 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 we unite together and we, we express our devotion to the Lord. It's another thing when I got that pile of bills and I got my checkbook and I start to say, you know, if I didn't give this week, then I'd be able to pay this bill. You know what I'm starting to do? I'm starting to depend upon myself. And in my own life, that's easy to do. How about you? And I covet for every one of you. You'll never know freedom. You'll never know the joy of really resting in your Father's will. And I'm talking about exercising wise financial biblical planning. But that kind of planning begins with a heart that says, I'm totally dependent upon the Lord. And one of the things I want to do is express my devotion to Him by opening my heart and give. The second thing is not only the idea that he made them sacrifice their bulls, I also want you to see the fact that he made them build, he made them build all of these 
temporary lean-tos. Turn over to Leviticus chapter 23. We'll just look at another portion of the Mosaic Law that talks about this, this Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, Leviticus 23 goes through all the feasts of Israel just about. So if you want to try to get them all together, beginning with the Sabbath feast that was held weekly, then moving to the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, they're all right here. But the chapter concludes with the Feast of Tabernacles. And I want you to see the end of it. Look at verse 42. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 42. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in these booths so that your descendants will know that I, had the, that I had the Israelites live in booths when they brought them out of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. What's the Lord saying here? He wanted these children of Israel to remember that they were a wilderness people. He wanted them to remember, according to the book of Leviticus, that At the Feast of Passover, they celebrated that the Lord had delivered them. The Lord had delivered them out of Egypt by his strong and outstretched arm, and he provided redemption for them. Then he brought them around to Mount Sinai, and the Lord at the Feast of Pentecost caused the Old Testament people to be reminded that at Mount Sinai, he gave them the law, the moral standards that they were supposed to live by. Then at the third annual feast, the Lord reminded them that they were a wilderness people. They were pilgrims. That they shouldn't get too settled down. You see, one of the major things that Moses warned the people about is that when you enter into the promised land, I'm going to give you cities that you didn't build. And I'm going to give you houses that weren't your own houses. I'm going to give you money and productivity and fields and everything else. And it's going to be my gift to you. But when you get settled into the land, when you get settled into the land, it's going to be very easy for you As I've been talking, emphasizing the point, it's easy when you get settled, when you're living in that house by the ocean, when you're living in that brick home, when we're living in the comfort of what God has given to us, it's easy for us to forget that we are just pilgrims, that we're just in the wilderness, that we're on a journey, and that we're not home yet. The Lord wanted the children of Israel to always be reminded that they were a wilderness people. Now, what was the guts of what the lesson of the wilderness was? As the children of Israel wandered for 40 years, the guts of what the Lord wanted to teach them was, when you get up in the morning, the manna has to come from heaven. The manna has to come from heaven. And you can only get it one day at a time. If you collect more, it's going to stink like you know what. One day at a time. When you need water to drink... Moses has to speak to the rock. Another time he has to strike the rock. And then he blew it one time and, and everything. You know, he lost his opportunity to go into the Holy Land. But when they needed water, they had to just ask the Lord. And the Lord gave them water to drink. The Lord caused their shoes and their clothing not to wear out incredibly. Man, Walmart would have gone broke. What was the lesson in the wilderness? You are a totally dependent people upon your heavenly daddy. As Mary and I gathered together with about 75 couples, 150 young, uh, young people. A lot of them were in their 20s, a whole bunch of them, about 20 to about 35. So they were young. It's really neat. But, you know, a lot of them were brand new baby Christians. And, you know, it wasn't what I taught them. They really taught me a whole lot. I'll never forget one of the guys, they had several of them, about six of the couples give testimonies. And these are brand new believers. One of the guys got up. And this guy used to, he was, just a few uh, months ago, he was dealing drugs. Really a wild guy. 
totally away from the Lord. And the Lord started to do a work in his life. And he and his wife have both come to know the Lord now. They started to meet with an older couple who's teaching them through the scripture how to handle their finances. And one of the very first things that he did is is he had them bring all their finances. And he saw that they were in a cycle where they would never, never, never be able to buy a car without being in debt. They were early in their marriage. They had no equity put away anyway, anywhere. They were going to be in a cycle where every four years when their car ran out of rust-proofing underneath in the Indiana, you know, salt-filled roads, they were going to, every four or five years, they were going to be in debt horribly again. And so this older believer challenged them and says, I'm not telling you you should never borrow, but I am saying that you're going to be a slave You need to really be careful about it. And I want to show you, you know, if you got rid of your new van, then you would be able to get in a cycle where you could probably buy the same van in about five years and pay cash for it. And then you'll be in a cycle where the rest of your life, you won't have that kind of indebtedness. Guy said, no way. My van is a brand new Voyager van. It has an infinity radio in it. It's what I always wanted. In fact, I can even switch the music from the front to the back. And my kids, that's really neat. So when they're sleeping in the back, I can switch it to the front. And this guy shared. He went home with his wife. They fought about it. But the Lord started nagging on him and saying, you really need to sell that van. So he came back a few, about a week later and says, okay, I'm going to sell the van. So they sold their van. And they were able to refinance their house and bring the payments way down. And they were able to get through their savings that they made about $5,500 towards a new van. So this older believer said, now you need to just start praying. Just ask the Lord, you know, what you can do. And the guy said, okay. They started praying with their wife. $5,500 and they started looking for all the ads and just the perfect van came up at a dealer in town. They rushed down there and as they arrived, they saw this van and it was exactly what they needed. I mean, the perfect van for them. Another couple was driving it. When this couple came up and the couple that was driving the van saw them come. They bought it on the spot. And they lost it. So the believing couple had been praying about it lost it. And the van, that van was for 7000 about $7,250. And it was just exactly what they needed. And it was what they were able, they were able to borrow another 2000 after the 5500 So they, were, they would have well been able to do it. And they said, Lord, what have you done to us? They called their friend up and he said, you need to keep praying. So they prayed, and about a week later, they saw in the paper this thing. The wife didn't even know exactly where it was. They took off up north of Elkhart. They went driving down the street. The wife had left the telephone number back home, so they they weren't even sure how to get there. But finally, they saw a van that they thought might be the one. They drove up. They looked through it, and it was exactly what they needed, and it was for $5,500, exactly what they had saved without borrowing anything. And the person came out, and he got in the van, and guess what? It had just the kind of radio that he wanted. And this guy, the tears, this couple got up, the tears were just streaming down their eyes as they were living, depending upon the Lord God to meet their needs. You know, the Lord really spoke to Mary and I through that. You know, I remember those days when I was really a young believer, when I just didn't have anything at all, and there really weren't a lot of choices about whether or not you depend upon yourself or what you might have been able to do in years past, and you're just radically committed 
to it all depends upon you, Father. And you, and you learn to be really sent to his voice and you learn to obey him. You know what I think the Lord does? I think the Lord God says the whole life. He says, I want you to go back to the wilderness. I want you to camp out. When the, you and the church family were really gracious to Mary and I and our entire family, when we took off for about five weeks before Jonathan went away to school, one of the things that we found out in just being gypsies, you know, just camping out from one park to the next, is all the stuff that we have, you really don't need in a lot of ways. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have it, but it does mean that we should not depend upon it. In fact, some of the neatest things happen when you get back to the simple things and you spend time together and you eat simple things and you get rid of all the stuff. And you know, the Lord God knew that. And that's why once a year, when they were a settled people, he made them act like they were just nomads again. Because he wanted them to never, never forget that it's all the Lord's. And whether you're living in a mansion or whether you're living in a tent, you're still totally dependent upon the Lord God. And I don't think that we're really getting the message until we can live in the tent and we can live in the mansion. And it's all the Lord's. The friend of mine that counseled this couple about their van and stuff, he exercised some wise biblical principles and was able to become to amass quite a bit of wealth. And, and he lived, he has a beautiful, beautiful home. A young guy in his church came over that wanted financial counseling. And as they were sitting there, the young man looked at this guy and said, how can you live in a home like this? And my older friend just went right on talking and taught him some other principles from the Word of God. And about 25 minutes later, the young man said to him again, you didn't hear what I said. How can you as a believer live in a home like this? And the guy said, I heard you. He said, well, why didn't you respond to me? You didn't fight me. You didn't, you didn't have any retort. He said, it doesn't make any difference to me. And then my older friend looked at this young believer and said, you're jealous, aren't you? The guy said, yeah, to be honest, I am. He said, and the older, this older believer said, I want to tell you something. He said, my wife and I, in the course of our marriage, have lived in one-room apartments. We've lived in multi-room mansions. And then we've gone back to one-room apartments. He said, I want you to know that while we were building this house, in fact, we just lived in an apartment. We had all of our stuff packed everywhere, and we just lived in an apartment. And I want to tell you something. It really doesn't make a lot of difference. But I said, he said, I want, to, I want to ask you something. As a young man in Elkhart, why are you in my living room today? He said, because I think you've learned how to handle money. I think you're wise. I think the Lord's blessed you financially. And he said, you know, that's the only reason I have this home. Because we've had one young couple after another this week, starting sometimes at 6 o'clock in the morning, we've had one young couple, a lot of them that don't even know the Lord at all, that have come into our home. Some of them have come into our home just because they want to see how my wife decorated it. And we've been able to use that as a hook to be able to bring them the truth about Jesus. The incredible thing about the Word of God is that it completely sets us free to realize that whether we're abounding or we're abased, whether we're living in mansions or whether we're living in tents, all of us are just pilgrim people. I just pray for you as, a, as your pastor, teacher. I want every one of you to have that kind of freedom. 
Some of you just recently have gotten really bad news about your job. And boy, that tears my guts out. It really does. That some of you that you've committed so much time and so much effort, and then it just yanked out from underneath you. And it makes me throw my hand and say, Lord, what are you doing? And I know if I'm saying that, you must be saying it all the more. Isn't it great to know we're just pilgrims? We're not home yet. And our Father is going to take care of it. We don't have to be afraid. When we are afraid, we can just tell Him that we're afraid. And what this Feast of Tabernacle does, it takes me back to when I was a kid in the Adirondacks. And often, several times during the summer months with my brothers and with other friends, we just take a sleeping bag like that. And we get in canoes sometimes. Sometimes we'd strap those things. We didn't even have, have backpacks half the time. We'd just strap those things on our back and we'd start walking way out in the woods, maybe eight hours back in the woods. We didn't have tents many. We didn't even do what they're talking about here, make these booths. A lot of times we just threw those bags on the, on the side of a mountain. As a little kid, sleeping in that sleeping bag and the rest of my friends had fallen asleep. And I'd lie there like this, looking up at the Milky Way, which in the Adirondacks just looks like God just sprayed the universe with a soft, fluffy, kind of a dust powder. And you'd be reminded, Father, if you can do that, and you planned it all, and you made all this beauty around, and I didn't have to pay a thing for it. And here I am, totally dependent upon you. Help me to learn to love you, and help me to learn to depend upon you. Help me to always be just a little boy. As I'm talking to you, I think that I've that I become sophisticated. How about you? You know, I think I start to look at what my hands have been able to do and what my mouth has been able to do. And I begin to think about all the human factors that I try to cover. Not that we shouldn't work hard and not that we shouldn't plan wisely. But the Feast of Tabernacles calls us all back to just the fact that we are a child in a loving daddy's arms. And I covet the peace and the rest and the freedom and the joy that comes when you understand that you're really just a pilgrim just a stranger, just a nomad, because we're not home yet. And sometimes we're going to go through some real struggles here on earth. We're going to go through some times where we don't know where the next bill is going to be able to be paid. But I don't want you to have a stress out heart attack because you're just scared to death. Instead, I want you to have rest. I want you to be a child looking up at the Milky Way saying, if my daddy can do that, then I think he can handle my needs. 